the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. We're bringing uh, Ben Shapiro in uh, just to get his uh, opinion on a couple of things here. Uh, Ben, welcome to the program. Ben Shapiro from the uh, Daily Wire. Uh, uh, Ben, first let me start with uh, Samantha Power and the uh, uh, Iran deal. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she is, I mean, she's directly responsible for empowering Iran, uh, and, and enriching Iran. She, I think only did it because they were in so much trouble because of the Benghazi gun running, uh, that they needed somebody to, to fight ISIS because they wouldn't. So they get, they get Iran to fight ISIS. I mean, it was just a cascade of, of errors and it doesn't help that, you know, I don't think she really likes Israel all that much. Yeah, I think the Obama administration had from the very beginning, even since before Obama was president, they, they had a plan for the Middle East, and that was to reshape the Middle East in line with Iranian regional ambition, because Obama has this particularly weird idea that Iran could be easily moderated and that they could, they could become a regional counterbalance to Israel because he doesn't like Israel particularly much. He doesn't like Saudi Arabia a lot. So why not, why not empower the Mullahs? Maybe that would moderate them. And Obviously, the, the opposite happened. The Mullahs were, were strengthened in power. Obama, you know, since 2009, was allowing dissidents to be mowed down in the streets, basically, mm. with no response from the United right. States. The, the Iran deal was just an outgrowth of, of Obama's peculiarly pro-Iranian view. Samantha Power is, is, I think, even more ridiculous, because Samantha Power, of course, got famous off the back of writing a book about genocide and the horrors of genocide in a West that stands by and does nothing while genocide is pursued. And then, of course, she was the architect of a Syria and Iran policy that ends with the genocide of half a million people in, in Syria. So she and, and yesterday she's sitting around talking about, oh, I remember the dark days when we had to worry about Iranian nuclear ambitions. I remember the dark days when Iran was a real threat. And then I remember the joy and the wonder that came about after the Iran deal. And you're looking around going, um, Samantha. Assad used gas on his own people five minutes ago. Iran has taken over Lebanon. Iran is taking over Yemen. Iran is taking over Iraq. Iran is pursuing violence via Hamas and Hezbollah. Like, what, what, are, you, what, what are you smoking? I mean, what, what kind of crack are you on? Because you're living in this alternative world where the Iran deal solves all of the Iran problems. And as you see, I think the most hilarious thing about the, the aftermath of, of Trump's completely correct and, and brave rejection of the Iran deal, the, the most hilarious thing is that the Obama people who had said that the deal was going to establish moderates in Iran, those same people were saying, well, now look at Iran. What do you expect them to do? And Iran was saying, we're going to go directly after nuclear weapons. We're, we're going to burn American flags and shout death to America. We're going to pursue strikes against Israel. Yeah, clearly the moderates have been wildly empowered by the Iran deal. So uh, this is really just empowering now Israel. I have no question that Israel could defend itself and can take care of itself. This is a, uh, a, a good move t- toward uh, empowering Israel. However, Ben, next week is their 70th birthday. We're going to open up the, um, the embassy, which I support. You've got, you've got riots in Gaza on the border. You have uh, the Iranian guard coming in and closing. You have, you have people starting to move towards the Golan Heights. Are we at a flashpoint do, is next week a really, really dangerous week? I mean, I, I think it is de- it's definitely a more dangerous week. But the problem for Iran is that it has no anti-Israel allies in the region other than the ones that it directly controls. So it's less dangerous for Israel than the same moves would have been, say, 15 years ago. Because 
The fact is that the Saudis, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, they're all on Israel's side. I mean, the Saudis have legitimately been telling the Palestinians, either take the deal that's being offered you or sit down and shut up, because they understand that Iran is, is a greater threat. One of the weird effects of Obama's pro-Iran policy is that it actually created this counterbalance in the form of this alliance that didn't exist before. I, I think that, you know, is it more dangerous in terms of Iran could, you know, push violence against Israel next week? Sure. Is it, but it's less dangerous than it would be in 10 years when Iran did the same thing. Right. If Iran has nuclear weapons and Iran pushes the same thing, then all of a sudden you're looking at the risk of nuclear war in the Middle East. Iran does not have a functional nuclear weapon at this point yet, which means that it, it, Bibi Netanyahu has got to be sitting there thinking, listen, if I've got to take the battle today or I've got to take the battle seven years from now when Iran has a nuke, I'd much rather fight it today, which is why Israel went in and struck an Iranian target in Syria. They've been striking Iranian targets in Syria pretty regularly. Iran would be absolutely foolish to, to escalate things dramatically with Israel because Israel actually does not only have the power to, to protect itself, but working in conjunction with Saudi Arabia using Saudi airspace, they have the conjunction to do serious damage to the regime itself. Do you think that um, uh, the, the, what happened in uh, with Saudi Arabia and the Middle East because of Barack Obama in some ways is going to happen here? I mean, this intellectual dark web, uh, the progressive movement has overplayed its hand and become so arrogant uh, and so unhinged that you're now starting to see, like you do in the Middle East, strange allies that are like, okay, this is crazy. We don't agree on everything, but we both agree that's much worse. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening. I think the radicalism of the left, which used to be you know, a fringe part of the liberal movement and now is moving very much into the mainstream, it's driving people out, even people who agree with the left. I mean, the, the, the intellectual dark web, which is this, this name that was given to a group of thinkers by Eric Weinstein, who's a a former Harvard uh, mathematics professor, a PhD. He's, he, he gave the name to this group of people that includes people like Jordan Peterson and me and Sam Harris and, uh, and uh, Christina Hoff Summers and, and Joe Rogan and Dave Rubin. It's, it's a bunch of weird thinkers, right? Brett Weinstein, who's a socialist. It's a bunch of people who disagree about everything politically, you know, people who are Bernie Sanders supporters and people who are Trump supporters and people who didn't support either and people who like Hillary. And the, the only thing that they have in common is they're looking at the left, and the left is attempting to shut down debate. The left is calling all of them racist, sexist, bigot, homophobes, and all these people going, wait a second. We just want to have reasonable conversations, even with each other, right? I mean, Sam Harris and I agree about nothing. I've been on Sam's podcast. Sam's going to come on my podcast. And the reason for this is because even though we agree on almost nothing, right, we both agree that the left attempts to shut down honest debate over the issue of, for example, radical Islam, is completely counterproductive and prevents anybody from having a decent conversation. So you're right that the, the, the radicalism of the left is creating all of these weird bedfellows, all these strange allies, and the left doesn't even see it. The left is, is stuck in this old model where if they just shout racist at us or if they shout bigot at us or if they, if they suggest that we should be thrown out of the Overton window, we just look at them and go, well, this is you yelling. This is how we built audiences. Right? Like we're not, none of us are on mainstream media. All of us built audiences on the back of you saying that we were deplorables. You shouldn't be listened to. And again, they're calling everyone a deplorable. They've created this tiny little window between Hillary Clinton and Ta-Nehisi Coates. And if you're not in that window, then you get thrown out. Well, that leaves a lot of people outside the window. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've seen a few crazies on the, the right uh, claim that you are just empowering the, um, the atheist uh, uh, wing of the left uh, going so far as saying that you're an atheist uh, and Jordan Peterson is an atheist. How, yeah, how, that's, how, that's how do you bad. respond to that? 
I, I wear the funny hat on my head and take every Friday night to Saturday night off and keep kosher and do all of this weird stuff because I'm an atheist. That's yeah, I know. I know. I you thought know, that was the Yamaka. Yeah, it's, right. it's, I mean, talk, that, that is just it, it's fully nuts. But there, there's a kook wing to, to, I think, every political movement. And, and unfortunately, there's a kook wing to ours as well. So, Ben, how do you how do you if we're driving towards the Enlightenment, which I think this intellectual dark web is, how do you um, meet with a bunch of atheists who I have atheist friends and have no problem with it? But we have to uh, make sure that reason uh, is coupled with the Enlightenment of rights come from someplace else other than God. How do you how do you bridge that gap? Well, I, th- I think for the moment, the, the, the important thing is that a lot of these atheists agree with the Enlightenment value of reason, but you're exactly correct. This is where the rubber is going to meet the road. And this is the debate that I've been having with, with Sam Harris, right? Sam is a militant atheist, and obviously I'm not. It, the debate that I've been having with Sam and with you know, Stephen Pinker and, and some of these other sort of Enlightenment, what, what are calling themselves the neo-Enlightenment thinkers, is that number one, I think that they're granting entirely too much credit to the Enlightenment itself as the source of science and the source of human rights. Because if you look historically, that's just not accurate. Human rights were, were in abeyance. Uh, they, they're, already, they're already starting to come around as early as the Renaissance. And science was a continuous process. I mean, Isaac Newton was happening in the 1650s, long before the Enlightenment. So the, the idea that, that it's just a bunch of atheist thinkers from 1790s France who are responsible for all the great good that's happened to the world since, I think is just inaccurate. Beyond that, they're failing to explain why it is that the Enlightenment happened here and now. Why is it that the Enlightenment happened in the West at a particular time? Why didn't it happen in China? Why didn't it happen in India? Why didn't it happen in the Middle East? And the answer, of course, is because there's a Judeo-Christian culture that has been built up over the course of literally thousands of years, and that has principles that are very much in, in evidence in Enlightenment thinking. John Locke, who's, of course, the leading American Enlightenment thinker, the, the Enlightenment thinker who the founders relied on most, John Locke spent half his life writing defenses of the Bible. He wrote Christian apologetics. These were religious guys, a lot of these Enlightenment thinkers. And I know there's this, this attempt to paint all Enlightenment thinkers as Kant. Right? They're, they're all pantheists who reject Christianity. Um, but the reality is that the Enlightenment was a lot more diverse than that, and not all aspects of the Enlightenment were particularly good. And I think we have to look at where did these aspects of the Enlightenment come from? And, are those, and more importantly, are those aspects of the Enlightenment is it possible to uphold those aspects of the Enlightenment in the absence of certain Judeo-Christian values? So, for example, you see people like Pinker and people like Harris talking about the value of each individual human being. Like Harris says he builds that his entire worldview, his entire moral worldview, on the well-being of humans. Okay, well, what in atheism suggests that the well-being of humans ought to be the first priority? The answer is nothing. Atheism is not a system of thought. Atheism is a rejection of God. It is only in the Judeo-Christian West that says that man is made in God's image that you can have a, a system that says, and human beings have individual rights because they were made in God's image, that you have rights and I have rights. Otherwise, collectivists say, well, you know, human beings are human beings, and if we want to make life better for everybody, if we kill a few million of them here or there, what's the big deal? Couldn't you? The, the idea of in, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. The, the idea of individual rights springs from a long tradition in, in the Christian West, and trying to separate off the, the rose from the bush is going to, it, you may be able to put the rose on the vase for a minute, but it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, you know, die and wither pretty quickly. Couldn't you, couldn't you make the case that um, the enlightenment without God is kind of what the left has thought they were doing here in the last few you know, decades where we are science-based and let's get away from God and let's treat each other right. And without those principles of the 
individual is supreme and the individual, uh, you know, has certain unchangeable rights, we start to just slide into this kind of crazy place that we're in now. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I think that it's not just that the, the enlightenment without God, you know, brings us to where we are now. It's the enlightenment without God brings us to some of the worst places that we've ever been. Yes. Right? It, Marx, Marx was part of the Enlightenment. Okay, people want to say that he was part of the counter-Enlightenment. That's, that's a nice way of, of trying to exclude him from the community of people who are thinking along the lines of reason. Marx thought he was, he was speaking on behalf of pure reason. He thought he was speaking on behalf of the idea that human beings were, were fatally flawed, and the only way to fix that was through reason via the collective. Right? If, you, if we could just shift the system in which we live, then human beings would naturally become better. There were a lot of Enlightenment thinkers like August Comte who, who were specifically saying, let's look at science and then let's base public policy around science. And this led to the growth of centralized bureaucracy, which, by the way, in the early 20th century is pushing eugenics here in the United States. So mm-hmm. reason can take you in a lot of different directions if you don't have fundamental principles on, on which to base reason. Reason is not actually a set of principles. Reason is a methodology, just like diplomacy is not a set of principles. Diplomacy is a methodology. The question is, what are the premises that you are using to work off of when you, when you use reason, beyond which I think that a lot of atheist thinkers, you know, they, they like to talk about reason and, and they talk about will and how we can change things around. And, and you just wonder, well, what in atheism, what in atheist science says that reason ought to be the ultimate value at all? Why should, why should reason be the ultimate value? Why shouldn't it be emotion? Why shouldn't it be instinct? Why shouldn't it be nature itself? The reason is, a, is an, a, a pre-enlightenment concept. I mean, it goes all the way back to Aristotle and Greece you know, the, the, and, and Plato. The, the notion that reason is itself pushed by science is completely ascientific. There's, there's nothing in science that says that reason has to be the way that we govern the world. I just would like to point out at this point, uh, Ben lives in uh, Los Angeles, and so it is about 6.59 there in the morning. Uh, have you ever been able to think like this at any time of the day, let alone 6.30 in the morning? <laughs> well, the, the, the good news is I have an alarm clock in the form of my son who decides to wake up at 5.55 every morning, so I've been up for a while. Uh, okay, all right, good. Yeah, me too, me too. Thanks a lot, Ben. I appreciate it. Ben Shapiro, if you don't know his uh, podcast, find it at The Daily Wire or on, uh, you know, wherever you find podcasts. Uh, ben Shapiro. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network.